Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. Hey, this is Mike O'Connell, and, and before we get the podcast rolling here, I just wanted to announce a change in schedule. We had advertised that this week's podcast was going to be an interview with Chris Curran of the Engineering School of Podcasting. We're pushing that back a week because we had the opportunity to speak to Jim Heaney of Investigative Post about a big story that they broke a couple of years ago, and that's had some recent uh, developments in the state of New York around uh, the Buffalo Billion Project. We thought this was a much more timely story, so we, we moved it up in our process, and I hope you enjoy. It's not just this nice little exercise of, you know, we'll, we'll help investigative reporters in town do do their reporting. You know, they, this Buffalo is a town that has its share of problems and challenges, and folks are investing uh, are investing in, in us to produce journalism that leads to a better Buffalo, and that's what we're trying to do. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about the ever-evolving world of digital journalism and the people behind it. Today's guest is Jim Heaney, founder of Investigative Post, a nonprofit news organization in Buffalo, New York. Jim was an investigative reporter with the Buffalo News, covering New York's second largest city for 25 years, with a focus on government and urban economic issues. Investigative Post kicked off in 2012 and is the only news organization in Western New York exclusively dedicated to watchdog journalism. Welcome, Jim. Nice to be here. Thanks oh. for having me. Uh, and also on the phone with us today is uh, Amber Healy, who set up this interview. She's uh, our website editor, and she's always on the lookout for a good story, and, and she was the one who approached Jim about this. So actually, if you want to kick this off, why don't you go ahead and do that? Yeah. Buffalo has a long history. It was a two-newspaper town for quite a while. The Courier Express died sometime in my life, 19, 1982. Yeah, 1982. So I was I was a, a wee young thing, not yet quite in journalism. But the Buffalo News obviously has done you know great work in its history. But it got to the point where we needed a little bit more in depth, a little more bite to our news. Um, and I think that's a role that Investigative Post is really working on. But uh, Jim, can you tell us a little bit more about your, as Mike likes to call it, your journalist's journey, how you got your start in news, and how you came to to lead Investigative Post? Well, I'm uh, I'm a Buffalo native. So I started a weekly paper when I was 23 years old, a, a neighborhood weekly. Uh, I like to consider it, uh, refer to it as an artistic success and a financial failure. <laughs> I took a job in Orlando. I worked for the Orlando Sentinel, the daily down there for six years. Um, started out as a copy editor and, and layout editor and uh, moved on to reporting. Wound up doing a lot of reporting for the Sentinel. Took a job back in Buffalo as a reporter in 1986 with the Buffalo News. I was at the News for 25 years. I always kind of consider myself somebody that was kind of on the cutting edge of things. I was one of the early practitioners of what's known as computer-assisted reporting. Did that almost my entire reporting career. I mean, I, I did it early enough on where, where the newsroom in Orlando did not have desktop computer in its in its newsroom. I had to make friends with the ladies in marketing who had the only desktops in the building. And uh, so I did reporting that. When I started at the news, the 
desktop I worked on was located in the basement of the building, uh, far away from the newsroom. And uh, so I've always been into, you know, what's the next thing in journalism. And, uh, you know, when blogging came along, I, I embraced blogging. When I was at the paper, I was doing a daily blog on top of my investigative reporting responsibilities. I was the paper's computer assistant reporting editor for a spell until uh, the news started investigative reporting team. And then I was a reporter on that team. And, uh, you know, along came, you know, 2011, and buyouts were on the table at the Buffalo News. And I, you know, felt I had done what I could do as a as a reporter, I, you know, there were a lot of other things I wanted to do with my brain and with my talents beyond just reporting. I had a lot of ideas about how I thought journalism should be practiced in this day and age. And I, uh, with the support of an understanding wife, was, you know, willing to allow me to walk away from a, a good-paying job with lifetime job security. I started Investigative Post with my credit card. You know, a lot of these nonprofit newsrooms start with some sort of a large, you know, found foundation or some somebody you know writing a large check to get them started and I was kind of brazen enough to think that uh, you know I can do this I'm just gonna I'll just kind of float this with my credit card until I get some major donors on board and um, and it's worked out so here I am we're uh, four and a half years into it and um, I'm quite happy with my I was happy with my decision to join the Buffalo News. I'm happy with my decision to leave the Buffalo News, and I'm I'm happy with uh, I'm quite happy with what I'm doing right now. You know, is this a one man operation? Or you've oh, got no. several people. No, Tell I've us got, about the uh, setup. Right now, I've got three full time reporters. I've got a uh, three quarters time development director who uh, has up our fundraising operation, and I've got significant independent contract relationships with somebody who does social media who does my web and tech. We outsource all our like bookkeeping and accounting type functions. And uh, we got somebody who does our uh, radio production work as well. So it's really, it's, we're pretty much a five person staff with four significant independent contractors on top of that. So starting an investigative site like this, you know, what, what's your mandate? What type of stories are you looking to, to tackle? We've got two criteria when, when our staff sits down to talk about stories. We've got two criteria. Can we either expose wrongdoing or explain a, a complicated, important issue? And in doing that, can we make a difference? So, you know, I want tough Journalism that makes a difference, I think, is 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 one way. Hard hard nosed journalism that makes a difference, is really the criteria. So you know we want to have impact, and you know as a nonprofit newsroom, you know folks who donate to us want to see their their money ha have impact. It's not just this nice little exercise of you know we'll we'll help uh, the investigative reporters in town do do their reporting. You know, they, this Buffalo is a town that has its share of problems and challenges, and folks are investing uh, are investing in, in us to produce journalism that leads to a better Buffalo, and that's what we're trying to do. So you guys have uh, queued me up nicely to ask about what's going on this week, which <laughs> is something that I know Investigative Post has been on top of for uh, quite some time, looking into the, the funds that have been dedicated towards certain revitalization and big construction programs in Buffalo. And that's sort of become kind of a mess this week. 
Yeah, you know, in a nutshell, Governor Andrew Cuomo committed a billion dollars to help revitalize the Buffalo economy. His signature project involved construction of a massive plant to house a solar panel manufacturer. We reported two and a half years ago uh, some curious bidding procedures, shall we say, and uh, it caught the attention of U.S. Attorney Preet Bahara who uh, launched a federal investigation into that. It's since kind of uh, morphed into a, a statewide investigation of the governor's economic development program. And on Thursday, the U.S. attorney and the state attorney general both handed down indictments that, among other things, accused uh, top Cuomo administration officials and several leading developers of what amounts to bid rigging in order to deliver contracts to developers that happen to be major contributors to the governor's campaign. So we were, Investigative Post was your news organization that, that broke that story two and a half years ago, and we've, we've really stayed on top of it. You know, the Buffalo Billion program in this market has not been has not been aggressively covered from a watchdog reporting perspective. Frankly, there's been a lot of cheerleading in the local press about this. And we've been the ones pointing out all sorts of problems with transparency and promises not kept and it doing the things that investigative reporters do. And so it's been gratifying to see that, uh, that our work has led to uh, an effort by uh, the U.S. attorney to try and clean up uh, the corruption that he's uncovered during, during his investigation. Yeah, and I guess we're we're talking to you shortly before you're going to go to a press conference with the governor. Uh, so I guess he's going to respond to some of the stuff that you reported. Well, I mean, you know, his some of his top people got indicted yesterday, and uh, one of them was effectively fired yesterday. So, you know, there are going to be questions of the governor in terms of what did he know and when did he know it, because these were people. These were his right-hand, you know, people who, who were indicted yesterday. So this has come as close to the governor's directly as as is possible without the governor himself being indicted. Let's talk. I mean, obviously, um, for people in Western New York, are going to be more apprised of this this story than than others. Let's sort of talk about the evolution of your reporting of it. You know, how did you find out about this? Obviously, I don't want you to name your sources, but how did you find out about it? And then what was your approach? You know, how did you sort of you know, continue to cover it over the over this period of time to get to this point. Well, I'd, I'd received a tip from a source when the uh, request for proposals was originally issued, and this source felt the RFP kind of had a note or to it that this doesn't look like a like a player of a, a level playing field, so to speak. So I got my hands on the RFP and I read it, and it had a one thing jumped out at me. It, it required that anybody who was submitting a, a proposal among the criteria they were being asked to meet was they they should have been a developer in Buffalo for 50 years. That's five zero years. It struck me as a very high threshold, and I looked into the major development firms in town to see who's been around that long, and there was only one, and it was a company that was owned by somebody who was one of the governor's largest campaign contributors. So I challenged the state on it. I, you know, what's this, 50 years? And, uh, you know, the explanation I got was, oh, that was a typo, that was a clerical error, we'll fix it. And they revised the RFP, And but the, the company uh, that was 
was the 50-year company, shall we say, wound up getting the job anyways. And I, I got a call back from the same source that says the process they followed to get to that uh, decision was not a normal process. You know, keep digging, Heaney. So I went and asked more questions about, you know, the, the, the process. And what was explained to me sounded like a perfectly legitimate process. And I was dealing with Elaine Carlieros, who's the governor's point guy on all this stuff. And uh, and I said, well, I like all the paperwork that documents this process that you say is so legitimate. And uh, I was completely stonewalled for six months on it, completely stonewalled. The state went to ridiculous lengths to deny me information, access to people, et cetera. And I wound up doing a story in December 2014 about the the lack of transparency, you know, about the 50-year requirement, about the lack of transparency, about the great lengths, extraordinary lengths, that the state went to, to try and thwart my reporting. And uh, and that apparently, you know, um, got the attention of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan, which had inherited a lot of corruption cases from the State Moreland Commission. The governor had appointed something called the Moreland Commission to investigate corruption in state government. And uh, he shut it down not that long after it got started. And the U.S. Attorney, Prepahara in Manhattan, kind of took over their files and started looking into corruption himself. So um, I, I think my reporting wound up being, you know, in the mix, so to speak, when they started looking around to figure out what it is they wanted to look at. So it was just a lot of, you know, just a lot of dogged reporting. I mean, there was no magic in what I did. You just do what reporters do. You ask questions and you keep digging. And, and when people, you know, try to deny information, you dig in your heels and you go after it that much harder. So uh, with the the lack of transparency, I mean, was it you were trying to get documents to support this and they weren't giving you yeah, documents? Yeah, much? yeah. Yeah, and they were claiming uh, it was the development agency is a, a nonprofit affiliate of the SUNY system, and they were claiming because they were nonprofit, they were not subject to the FOI law, et cetera, et cetera. It would have been comical if it wasn't so. <laughs> if it wasn't so outrageous. And, uh, I mean, I've been a reporter for 40 years, and I've never gotten the runaround, the kind of obstruction that I've dealt with with state officials on that story and on, on this project. They just don't want the public to know how they conducted business. And in retrospect, in light of what the indictments have revealed, there was good reason for them to not be willing to be transparent because the process they were using was the if the indictments are to be believed, the process they followed was a corrupt process. And meanwhile, the other news outlets in town, with the exception of a partnership that Investigative Post has with the local NBC affiliate, most of the press in town has been, in Buffalo rather, has been very, you know, look at how great Buffalo is doing. We're getting all this investment, all this attention from the governor. Isn't that wonderful? It's not just promises anymore. I mean, it's easy to go off with the Buffalo News to sort of acknowledge that anything slightly less than above board was going on. Let me say this. You know, Investigative Post and my partners at WGRZ have been very aggressive, and you have not seen that approach to the story by any of the other news outlets in town. I, I think I'll just leave it at that. You know, one of the things that's unique about Investigative Post is the is the partnerships that we've built. We've got a tremendous working partnership with WGRZ, which is the NBC station here in town. We develop story ideas. We do the on-air reporting. The station provides the camera person, the producer, to do the editing. You know, we're on air uh, with the anchors after most of our, our stories air. It's 
just a very collaborative, very successful working relationship. As of a year ago, we've had a partnership with WBFO, which is the NPR station here in town. So our model is really we do we do newspaper quality investigative reporting. We write a newspaper story that is publishes on our website that also publishes with, with our third major partner in town, which, which is the public, which is an alternative news weekly. And so we, we, we do the print story, doubles as an online story. We do a television version for WGRZ, and we frequently do a radio version for WBFO. So we are unusual in that we are not only the only outlet in town focused exclusively on doing watchdog journalism, but we're the only news organization in town and arguably maybe in the state that is doing it on all the major platforms, online, print, television, radio. And we're very active on social media as well. And and then we've expanded those working relationships where we're working with ProPublica right now uh, on a project in in conjunction with the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. We've had our work published by Gannett newspapers across upstate, including the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. We've also got some uh, working relationships going with the Times Union of Albany, and the Niagara Falls Gazette. So we're constantly trying to grow our partnerships to grow our our audience. Because really, we need to get our work in front of a large audience if we're going to have impact. So you're talking about a couple of different things here that are kind of interesting for you know what what we talk about a lot about in the podcast is t- you know creating journalism that's that's necessary that that has impact but then you know trying to deal with it in the sort of the new reality of what the journalistic environment is the fact that you've got all these partnerships and all these different platforms you're you're in social media that you're a nonprofit as opposed to like a traditional news outlet you're sort of building this identity that you can get all these other people in and all the pieces sort of work together to to make this function. So that's just more of an observation than I guess a question. I guess the question then would be what what is what are you most happy with or, or most proud about as far as you know this model that you've created? Well, I think what I I'm, I'm proudest of is the fact that it's resulted in a lot of really good journalism. You know, we've had I mean, we've we've talked about the story with with the Buffalo Billion, but I mean, my reporters have done a lot of uh, really good stories that have had impact. My environmental reporter has done uh, some great work around lead poisoning in the city of Buffalo, uh, around uh, the major uh, river that flows through the city, which is horribly polluted. His work has resulted in in some steps to to reverse that. You know, any any number of different stories that we've done that have had impact that have made a difference. So that's what I find because, you know, there's a lot on the business side that is unique and different and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, I'm a journalist. I'm running a journalism organization, and what I'm here to do is – is practice really good journalism and and build an organization that's capable of doing that and and that's and that's what we're doing. Well, um, let's go back to 2012 then. You know, you're going to start this thing. You know, how did you how did you launch it? You know, you said you used your credit card. Was that pretty much what you're going to do? To you, you sort of did your initial uh, financing and then started creating content and try to get the attention of uh, donors. 
Well, I had, you know, I had uh, relationships with a couple of, of outlets. I did not have a TV partner the day I launched, and uh, and the day I launched, I got a call from the news director at, at WGRZ. It was, you know, I think we met either that day or the following day, and within a couple months, I was on the air with them. The radio station took a little bit of time to kind of bring that relationship along. I had a relationship from the start with a different alternative weekly in town. And so we were able to get our work in front of a, you know, a significant audience early on, which was important because, you know, if your work's going to have impact, people have to be able to see it. <laughs> and standalone news websites, you know, at least on a local level, are not don't generate tremendous amount of traffic. I mean, you need to use the established media as a distribution network. They've got the eyeballs. They've got the audience. And what a nonprofit investigative reporting center like Investigative Post is able to provide these legacy media outlets, so to speak, is high-quality journalism at an affordable price. You know, investigative reporting is difficult, expensive work, and that tends to be the kind of work that news organizations tend to do less of as their bottom line you know, starts to bleed red ink, or at least doesn't. <laughs> the for-profit media uh, is a lot less profitable than it used to be, and costly, time-consuming investigative reporting is, is one of the first things that tends to go. So, you know, along comes an outfit like like Investigative Post, and you're able to get high-quality reporting on your air or in your pages at a fraction of the cost that it would take you to do if you were doing it on your own, and it's done by full-time investigative reporters that have a skill set that isn't found in every journalist within, you know, the news organizations in town. So we're, you know, again, it's it's high-quality, impactful reporting at, a, at an affordable price, and we found customers for that. You know, <laughs> there's a business model for that. You know, the the media outlets, the fees they pay don't cover the entire cost of what we're doing, but it covers a portion of the cost. And the balance, you know, we're financed through foundations, we're financed through major donors, we're financed through smaller donors. We do events that bring some revenue in. And so it's it's kind of a cross-section of, of revenue sources. No single source pays a majority of the bills, but when you add it all up, you know, we're covering our expenses and are able to grow. So these big impact type stories, they take time to, to research and write. You know, what's your content flow like? You know, how often are you, you posting and releasing material? Well, it's kind of evolving. I mean, we're trying to do some things to populate our website with content on, if not a daily basis. For example, we launched a podcast program that we post something fresh every Thursday. Mm-hmm. And our flow of content on the website, there might be something new every day for a week. And then the following week, there might be only something new a couple of days a week. The bulk of what we do are stories to take anywhere from a week to maybe a month to do. And uh, it's, it's a constant challenge because if you want traffic on your website, you need, you know, fresh content. But the more fresh content you do, the fewer longer form stories that you're doing. So we're, we're, it's, a, it's a constant struggle. Yeah. Yeah, you got to feed the beast without starving the, the core mission, which is to do kind of heavy-duty investigative reporting. Yeah, that, 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 can be, that can be a huge challenge. So, you know, one of the things we like to do um, when we talk about things like this, investigative journalism, but also in, in launching a, an initiative like this, is sort of try to, you know, talk about, 
you know, people who might be interested in doing something like this, how they could, uh, you know, get get involved in it. You know, if, if we've got a young journalist who wants to become an investigative reporter, what advice would you give them? Do not start a nonprofit investigative reporter. <laughs> well, that. no, I, well, I, 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 I say that because, and, and I've had conversations with students. It's like, you know, you're 25. I mean, I've had people still in journalism school say, well, I, I want to start a center. And I look at them and I say, you don't know how to be an investigative reporting or reporter because you've never done it. You're in school. Go get a job as a reporter and learn the craft. And then if you want to do something, then figure out how you're going to be a successful business operator. Because, you know, somebody gave me very good advice when I started Investigative Post. And it was the only thing that's nonprofit about what you're doing is your tax status. You are running a business. You better run it like a business or you're going to be out of business real fast. And I think part of the challenge that nonprofit investigative reporting centers have is that they're started by very well-intentioned journalists who view um, the business side of what we do as a necessary evil with the emphasis on evil. And you can't approach it that way. You know, raising funds is not uh, is not journalism, but it's central to producing journalism because you don't have the money. <laughs> you know, you don't you can't hire and retain journalists. So, you know, I mean, I started Investigative Post. I was in my late 50s, and I was 57 years old. So I had 35 years of reporting experience under my belt. I had operated when I was 24. I owned my own weekly newspaper. I ran a hockey business for 20 years in my 30s, 40s, and 50s. So I had experience as a small business operator. And for 20 of my 25 years at the Buffalo News, I was very active in the leadership of the Buffalo Newspaper Guild, the union that represented the newsroom and several other departments. And I had negotiated eight different labor contracts. So I had all that experience under my belt. And I needed all those different experiences when I launched Investigative Post. So when I hear somebody saying, you know, 25 saying, oh, I'm going to do what you did. And no, kid, you're, you're not going to do what I did because you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> you know, you need a lot of real world experience in journalism and in business. And there's no shortcut. There's no shortcut. This isn't like writing the next fancy software, you know. There's no substitute for knowing how to run a business, knowing how to run a nonprofit, knowing how to practice investigative reporting. So my my advice to anybody who wants to get into this is, you know, unless you've got considerable experience, don't waste your time. Yeah, well, that, that's uh, that's really wise uh, advice. Uh, you know, we've, we've talked to a lot of people who have uh, – talked about, you know, innovative story techniques and things that they wanted to take out. and But they, they never seemed to be paying attention to the business side of it. The business side would sort of take care of itself. You know, we're going to create this wonderful thing, and it'll pay for itself, or it'll be financed somehow, but it, it never seems to happen. Well, I, you know, I think folks in the trade are much more sophisticated about the need to put together a financially sustainable organization than than maybe five years ago. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, there's a lot more reality has set in. And, you know, not many nonprofits have gone out of business. A, a lot are treading water. You know, they're small shops. They're two, three, four 
person operations, and it's tough to get to that critical mass. And uh, but I, I know the conferences I attend, uh, the Institute for Nonprofit News is the kind of trade group for about a hundred nonprofit news organizations, and and they're uh, you know folks are getting a lot more sophisticated and real about what needs to get done. You know, it's a young segment of of the news industry. Uh, we're kind of figuring it out as we go along, but we are figuring it out. And I think that nonprofit news is going to continue to to play an increasingly important role in the in the landscape. Simply because the the for-profit media is, in a lot of in a lot of ways, the for-profit media is becoming the non-profit media, not not by choice, but but because of market forces, and you know, so there is a role there is a role for organizations like mine to to fill that void with a, a kind of a niche, high-quality product again at an affordable price. You just have to be savvy about how you go about it. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you just w- one more thing. As we kind of wrap up here, uh, you know, you're going to be going off and to, to the press conference for the, go- for the governor. So, you know, where are you going next with this story? Is this sort of see what he has to say or, or you've got other Well, I mean, I'm sure we're going to get a lot of mumbo jumbo from the governor. No, I mean, we don't. Uh... You know, I don't put a whole lot of stock in what gets said at press conferences or press releases. We we tend not to pay a whole lot of attention to it. You know, there are any number of angles that we're that we're going to follow up on. Some on our own, some in collaboration with with our our partners at the at WGRZ. And uh, you know, this is a huge story for Buffalo. Huge story. It's a huge story across the state, really, because we're talking about. You know, New York is a is a very high corruption state, and and this seems to be ground zero of corruption right now. And so, as investigative reporters, yeah, we're gonna kind of there's blood in the water, and we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna dive right in and see see what's there. Okay. Well, good luck. Uh, have a, have a good hunt, I guess, for <laughs> the okay. blood of, to find something to chew on. Um, we've been talking to Jim Heaney of uh, Investigative Post. Uh, wish you luck with um, uh, the work you're doing. I think it's pretty admirable. Thanks a lot. Next time on It's All Journalism. And these consultants who are teaching you about podcasting, they'll tell you, oh, don't worry about your sound. Don't, o- don't overstress on your audio sound. That's what they really mean. But what it comes off to most people as is, you know, don't worry about the sound. Just record something and, you know, good enough is fine. And that's okay. However, as I quite often point out, most people who are in podcasting actually know nothing about audio production. In our next podcast, we talk to Chris Curran, audio engineer extraordinaire, about how podcasters and journalists can improve their audio production. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, you've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a Down and Dirty Guide to Podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. 
There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.